open the, the, I won't open the message with a reading from the text, but throughout the message, I'll read mo much of the text. Think fast. Who do you think is the most successful person in the world? Perhaps you thought of Elon Musk, the wealthiest person in the world with his successful companies and influence. Perhaps you thought of Tom Brady with his seven Super Bowl titles. Perhaps you thought of Taylor Swift. Perhaps you don't even know who Taylor Swift is. You were privileged if that's the case. But uh, she was 2023 Time Magazine Person of the Year whose heiress tour became the highest grossing concert tour in all of history. If you thought of any of these persons, or if you thought of anybody like them, you just experienced the vanity that Ecclesiastes talks about. When you think of success in your own life, what do you think of? Do you think of accomplishments you desire to achieve before you draw your final breath? What about your children? What is your goal for their lives? What are some non-negotiables? According to a Pew Research conducted last year, when asked how important is it that your children grow, to, grow up to be financially independent, 88% of parents said extremely or very important, while getting married and having children were um, in the low 20s. We have to admit that culturally, we don't know what success is. But nothing is new under the sun. The same was true in the time of the preacher. And this is the message of Ecclesiastes. The message of Ecclesiastes is this. What the world calls success is not truly success. Evangelist D.L. Moody rightly said, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. One of the most powerful strategies that the devil uses against us is not to convince us to do wicked things, although he does that. The devil instead traps men into idolizing that which is common, making ultimate that which is secondary, causing us to major in minors and minor in majors. This is why the simple statement of English evangelist C.T. Studd is so relevant for us today. Only one life will soon pass. Only what is done for Christ will last. This is the antidote to the message of Ecclesiastes. So... Today, in our text, we embark with the preacher on a journey. We'll journey with the men who experienced all that there is to experience in life. And he returns to the same conclusion. All is vanity 
under the sun. So they will learn what does not lead to success. As the preacher implicitly warns us, do not waste your life. Do not become enamored with things that don't last. Do not live for that which is transient. So today's message is a warning for us to not live for earthly success, but instead to discover what eternal success truly is. I have three points. They are very clear in the text. So as we journey today, we'll see three false successes in life. First, wisdom. Second, pleasure. And third, work. So first, let's consider wisdom. In verse 12, the preacher reminds us of who he is. He has been king of Israel in Jerusalem. Remember that the word preacher comes from the Hebrew word koheleth. Koheleth is someone who assembles others to teach wisdom. And this is exactly what the preacher sets out to do here. He promises to share his wisdom, but not just superficial wisdom. What, what, is, what is interesting about this journey is that the preacher is saying, look in verse 13, I have applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So this is not a trivial pursuit. This is a wholehearted pursuit that the preacher endeavored and he applied his heart he invested himself in the pursuit of knowledge through wisdom so this experience he shares is not a light matter this is his life project by the way the preacher wants to give us wisdom teach us wisdom right and there are two ways we can learn wisdom we can learn it from other people or we can experience wisdom, right? We can experience hardship in life and grow. But both ways are good. But whenever someone offers you wisdom, right, you take it. You take it. Don't wait until the hardship comes for you to learn that wisdom. One of the best ways to gain wisdom is to learn from others' experiences, Talking to others who have walked the, co the course before us. Often, this means younger folks seeking wise older folks to help them understand the issues of life. This is 1 Timothy 2. Older men disciple younger men. Older women disciple younger women. But notice the conclusion that the preacher arrives at in his search at the end of verse 13. He sets out to search for knowledge through wisdom. And he says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Now, this is not surprising. This conclusion is not surprising. We've been told by the preacher, all is vanity. All is vanity. We know that he's going there. But what is surprising 
is that he arrives at this conclusion through the pursuit of wisdom. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were in, over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Meaning the, the spectrum, right? He, he knows not just what is right, but he's, he set his heart to know what is wrong in order, in order to avoid it. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. How could the pursuit of wisdom be striving after wind? The Bible speaks of wisdom positively, doesn't it? Wisdom is to be desired more than gold and silver. Christ is the wisdom of God. God is wise in all his ways. So how could wisdom be vain? What does this mean? What does the preacher mean here? And, and here's what I think the preacher means. Not all pursuits of wisdom are wise. Not all pursuits of wisdom are wise. Listen to what James says in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. So if there is a wisdom that comes down from above, there has to be a wisdom that does not come down from above. Right? But it's earthly. Earthly wisdom. Unspiritual. And demonic. Notice that, notice that James doesn't say that earthly wisdom is neutral. Right? James is saying that earthly wisdom, wisdom that does not come from above, wisdom that is not eternal, is, yes, earthly, unspiritual, but demonic. It, it's the desire of Satan that you will believe that earthly wisdom is good. He wants you to believe that. In other words, there is a way to pursue wisdom that does not lead to the worship of God, but to the worship of self and the worship of Satan. Knowledge for knowledge's sake is self-exalting. The pursuit of knowledge should always be for the purpose of knowing God. Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty boast in his might. Let not the rich boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We live in an age that has exalted, that has overly exalted the importance of education. Often when you ask people, how can you fix your society? How can you lift people out of poverty and misery? How can you fix the world? Very often they say, 
We need more education. We need better education. We associate education with true wisdom. And although, although there is some overlap, the two are not equal. In many ways, the textbook has replaced the Bible. And the professor has replaced the preacher. But the preacher here calls us to return to the wisdom of God. My first week here in, at Central Baptist Church, I met with a professor from Florida Tech right next to us. And as I talked to him, I realized that this man knew more about math and science than I will ever, ever know, perhaps even in eternity. Maybe not. I don't know. But you know what he told me? He told me that he does not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. He told me that he believes that the words of Jesus are true, but anything besides the words of Jesus in the Bible is not true, is not to be accepted. Why does he believe that? Because he's filled with earthly wisdom. But the wisdom that he has received is not from above. If we really want to know facts, just ask the experts. Ask someone with a PhD. But we know that often the experts get it wrong, don't they? Knowledge and wisdom don't necessarily go together. And even wisdom can be foolish when it is not from God. 1 Corinthians 3, 19-20 For the wisdom of this world Saying that the Bible is not the word of God, right? That's the wisdom of this world Saying that the textbook replaces the Bible The wisdom of this world is folly with God For it is written He catches the wise in their craftiness And again, the Lord knows the thought of the wise And they are futile so clearly there is a wisdom that is not from God and a wisdom that is actually folly. And no matter how much you pursue this wisdom or how sincere you are in the pursuit of this wisdom or how hard you work to acquire this wisdom, it will always be like chasing the wind. This is earthly wisdom. And what makes earthly wisdom vain first earthly wisdom does not affect real change or effect real change look at verse 15 pursuing wisdom the preacher says but what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted this verse just depicts the reality of a broken cursed world things are crooked and there's nothing we can do about it. Things are lacking and we can't fill them. I, I was talking to someone just this past week who is not a believer, who is a mutual friend with Mickey Quintana. And she said to me, this situation is so frustrating. That's vanity, right? That's Ecclesiastes. I wish there was something I could do for Mickey. And I told her, there's something we can do. We can pray. I could see in her reaction that she was not convinced. But that's because she has earthly wisdom, but not eternal 
wisdom. Friends, the moment we stop believing in the supernatural power of things like prayer, we demonstrate we don't have the wisdom of God. Did you know we meet every Wednesday evening to pray? I could ask you to prayerfully consider joining us, but I'm just going to tell you, join us. Pray when we come together. Friends, a church that prays together is a powerful church. The church that prays together is a church that walks in the wisdom from above. You can't expect to have wisdom from above and neglect prayer at the same time. Prayer affects eternal change. So do not live a prayerless life, prayerless life. And come pray with us week in and week out. Second, earthly wisdom only further exposes us to the brokenness of this world. Look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation, frustration. And he who increases wisdom increases sorrow. In other words, the preacher is saying the more you know, the more you suffer. Earthly wisdom is frustrating because it increases suffering. And suffering without the ability to impart, to effect real change is a terrible thing. The knowledge that something is wrong paired with the inability to do what is right is at the heart of the word vanity. Too much knowledge can lead to desperation. I remember when Boaz was born, uh, he was born very healthy, but his breathing was accelerated. So we had to put him in the NICU for a few days. He was a huge baby, could hardly fit in the NICU bed. And, uh, and he was plugged into all kinds of monitors. And for two days, I watched those monitors like a hawk. I knew everything that was going on with his breathing with his oxygenation with his um, with all aspects of his of his life for 48 hours then it was time to move on and I remember thinking if they unplug him from these machines how will I know he is okay you see I had been fed knowledge that I didn't need for two days and then I was not comfortable with the Lord taking care of my son. With the Lord sustaining the life of my son. This is what it means to increase knowledge and increase sorrow. Friends, there are things that the Lord has kept from us. Because if we knew them, our sorrows would increase. And, and we need to realize that it's God in his wisdom. He's revealing to us what we should know. So, Pastor Lucas, are you saying that there is knowledge that we shouldn't pursue? Absolutely. There is knowledge that you should not pursue. You should pursue knowledge that will increase your faith and trust in Christ. And anything, anything that will challenge your trust in God is not a worthy pursuit. It will only add vanity, vexation, frustration, suffering to your life. Have you noticed how children have this incredible ability to find joy in life? And then, at which age 
do they become hardened? This is because increased knowledge increases sorrow. It's not surprising that Jesus tells us that we must be like children in order to enter the kingdom of God. We must entrust what we know to God, and we also must entrust what we don't know to Him. Third, earthly wisdom bears no impact in eternity. The preacher does not deny that wisdom is better than folly. He says that. But he recognizes that the end of the wise and the end of the fool is the same. The grave. Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I become so wise? And said in my heart that this also is vanity. In other words, the bones of a person will never reveal if that person was wise or a fool. The bones of a person will never reveal if that person had a high IQ or a low IQ. Bones don't show education, degrees, or accolades. Death is the greatest equalizer and even, of, even for wisdom. This sounds hopeless, and it is. So what do we do? We look for wisdom outside of us. We look for wisdom in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Right? Don't come to know God just through wisdom. He pleased God through the folly of what he, we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we, here's the wisdom of God, preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who believe, to the elect, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In one hand, the end of worldly wisdom is the same as folly. On the other hand, the end of godly wisdom is not. And we acquire godly wisdom through the preaching of the gospel. We acquire godly wisdom through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. This is why I dedicate time to study the Word of God before I stand before you. This is why I dedicate time to preach. If we are going to grow in wisdom, it will not be through a shallow proclamation of the Word of God. Last night as I was working on my sermon, Boaz asked me, Dad, uh, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm working on my sermon because I'm going to stand before the church and I want to deliver a sermon that I prepared. And then he asked me, why do you preach so long? And I said, son... Because I must preach until Christ is formed in everyone. So don't worry about the time. Don't worry about the length. Worry about the proclamation of Christ. Is Christ being formed in you? Are you hearing the word of Christ and you're saying, I need more of that. I need to die to the wisdom of the world and I need to embrace the wisdom of Christ. Friends, 
if this is happening in your hearts, every second is worth it. Notice what Paul says here. The essence of the preaching, right, that imparts the wisdom of God is not a preaching that helps us how to live in the minutia of the problems of life. But rather, it is the preaching that proclaims Christ and Him crucified. So if you want to have true wisdom, the wisdom of God, you need to hear that Jesus came to die on the cross. That He did so to pay for your sins and to reconcile you with God. Remember, we are pursuing the question of what success is. And what success is for a Christian. And I am telling you that success for a Christian is not to build a large church or to have a strong budget or to have a string of accomplishments that you can account for in your life. Success for a Christian is to believe that Jesus died on the cross. That's success. Does this message sound foolish to you? Are you... Are you tempted to dismiss this message and say, that's not enough. It is not enough that Jesus died for me. Does this sound like failure to you? Trusting in a man who died. Friend, the way of God is contrary to the way of the world. When the world tells you to be strong, the Bible tells you to be weak. Because the strong tends to trust in himself, and that is folly. But the weak trusts in Christ. Well, let's consider now pleasure. Let's consider now pleasure, which does not lead us to success. We definitely, definitely live in a world that is plagued with rampant pursuits of pleasure. Pleasure is not a bad thing at all. The Bible tells us that God takes pleasure in his work, that he delights in his people. God delights in his son. This is great. He is well pleased with Christ. God knows how to handle pleasure perfectly. But I think we know very well that we can often misuse pleasure. So the preacher retells of his hedonistic endeavors here. You may have heard this word before, hedonism. Hedonism is an ancient philosophy that affirms that the purpose of life is to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. This is what the pre preacher set out to do. Primarily searching for pleasure. And Honestly, in general, his pleasure-seeking is not immoral. Not everything that the preacher is going to say here ought to be pursued by us. Right? But in general, he's saying, I search for this with wisdom. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he tells us that again, he engaged his heart in the pursuit, but he knows it's vain. In verse 3, he says that he sought to cheer his body with wine. It's interesting that he adds to the clause, still in the same verse, my heart 
still guiding me with wisdom. What does this mean? It means that he drank wine, but not to the point of drunkenness. His heart was still wise. After he consumed wine, he was still guided by wisdom. He wanted to say that he found gladness in wine, but this only brought vanity to his heart. To his heart. Not because he used it sinfully, rather, even pursuing pleasure responsibly is an empty pursuit. Here's what he is saying. The pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake will not give you life, give your life purpose. There's more pursuit here. He built houses and vineyards, gardens and parks, pools and fruit trees. Not only that, but he also owns slaves, entertainers, concubines, gold and silver. Look at the summary he makes in verse 10. And whatever my heart or my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. But then look at his conclusion in verse 11. Then I consider all that my hands had done and the toil I experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Why is he so empty? You may be asking, if I had everything he had, I'd be happy. But we forget. We forget the dissatisfaction that we see in the world, even when the world has everything. We forget the dissatisfaction of Hollywood, the dissatisfaction of Washington, D.C. We forget that the power, the powerful are often empty. Even as I was preparing the opening illustration for this sermon, I looked at Forbes' list of billionaires in the world, and I thought to myself, if only I had a small portion of their wealth, my problems in life would go away. But that's a lie. That's a lie. Pleasure never comes without problems. But why is that? Well, the text gives us a clear hint of why the preacher found himself empty. Look at verse 4, and I'm going to move through several verses here now. In verse 4, he says, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Verse 6, I made myself pools for which to, from which to water the forest and growing trees. Look at verse 8. I also gather for myself silver and gold and treasure in the treasures of kings and provinces. Verse 9. So I became great. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. The problem is not the preacher pursued pleasure. 
but that he pursued pleasure for himself. But listen to how differently King David instructs us about joy. Speaking of the wise man in Psalm 1, but his delight is in what? In the law of the Lord. And, in his, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 16 verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 37 4. Delight yourself not in the pleasures of life. In the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Friend, God gave us a whole world to enjoy, but he calls us to enjoy it in him, not apart from him. Remember Adam and Eve, who had a whole garden to eat from, every fruit tree, none were kept from them except one. But they chose the one. They chose the pleasure that separated them from God. Do you pursue pleasure in a way that separates you from God? Perhaps illicit pleasure, lust, drunkenness, greed. These are clearly sinful, right? And if there is any of that in your life, you must put it to death. And I hope that during this series of Ecclesiastes, you and I will find these illicit pleasures in our lives and we will crucify them on the cross of Christ. But what about pleasures that are not sinful? But they are not from the Lord. Maybe you enjoy fishing, sports, video games, food. None of these things are sinful. But you overindulge in it to a point that these pleasures become idolatrous. Or these things become your refuge and strength. Do you at times pursue things like video games, television, social media as a way to numb yourself from the challenges of your day? Do you pursue hobbies like hunting, fishing, sports? just to get away from your family for some time? Do you spend money you shouldn't spend on Amazon or other online stores to help you cope with life? Do you overeat for comfort? Do you undereat? Do you spend too much time in the gym or in the mall? Do you work too much? Do you work too little? You see, none of these things I mentioned above are intrinsically sinful. But if you pursue them as though you were pursuing the solution for your life's problems, your life will be vain. Your heart will be empty. You end your days and you will say, I've wasted my life. So how is pleasure to, how is pleasure supposed to be experienced the right way? We said earlier that we look for wisdom in the gospel. The same is true for pleasure. 
we look for pleasure in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is how we put to death pleasures that become idolatrous in our lives. We realize that we're not to pursue life for our own sake, but we pursue the pleasures of life in order to honor Christ. Friends, if Christ died for you, if your destiny was condemnation in hell for all eternity, but now because of Christ, your destiny has become eternal bliss at His right hand in heaven. Friends, there's no reason why we should live for ourselves. There's no reason why we should pursue self-exalting pleasures. Pleasures are great. I love watching football Sunday afternoon. It is pleasant to me. But did you know that you can watch football for the glory of God? Did you know that you can go to the gym for the glory of God? Did you know that you can hunt, that you can exercise, that you can eat for the glory of God? And if your aim ultimately is to glorify Him in your body, every pleasure you pursue will be righteous and ever vain. We'll finish with work. It's my last point, and I'll move quickly through this for my son's sake. Work is good, right? I mean, one of the best traits a person can have is to be hardworking. This is America. We work hard because we know that hard work pays off. But work for the preacher is also vanity. Work is good. Work is not part of the fall. Work was established before sin entered the world. Genesis 2:15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work. In a sinless world, there was work. And to keep it. John 5:17 But Jesus answered them, "My Father is working until now, and I am working." So work must be a good thing if it was Established before creation, and if the Father and the Son work, right? And yet the preacher concludes that work also is vanity. How so? First, work was not established in the fall, but it is very much affected by it. The curse that fell on Adam made work hard. The ground, the land, do not cooperate. Just listen to the word in our text today. Toil. Sounds hard, doesn't it? But to make things worse, the preacher comes to the conclusion that not only is work hard, you can't carry your work into eternity. Listen to what he says in verse 18 of chapter 2. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing... 
that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. This is a terrible conclusion. But it's completely understandable. You work your whole life and when you die, you leave your accomplishments to someone who did not work for it. And who perhaps won't even try to maintain the fruit of your labors. Or perhaps they will squander the fruit of your labors. So he concludes the passage with a statement that sounds hopeful but but it's really not. He says, It is good to enjoy life and receive things from the Lord. But at the end of verse 26, he says, This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. But does it have to be? Does it have to be? Does everything in life have to be vain? Well, if our labors only affect this temporary life, yes. Yes, it's vain. You can build the most successful company, have more money than you could possibly spend, live in luxury and abundance. But, if, but in death, if death is the end of this, it is vain. But death is not the end, is it? For the believer... Our labors bear fruit of eternal life. Death is not the end because we were created to live forever. As Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15, after he presents one of the most incredible treaties on the resurrection of Christ, do you know when he tells the church in Corinth? Here's what he tells them. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, that's how we defeat vanity. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So if Christ rose from the dead, and you believe it, your labor bears fruit of eternal life. Here's what Paul is saying. Since Jesus rose from the dead, we do what whatever we do in this world matters for eternal life. Jesus is our Lord, so we work for Him, and from Him we'll one day receive a reward. So it matters not if we are the richest or the most successful or the most powerful, most pre prestigious person in the world. These things are like the wind. They're like grass. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But what, what does truly matter? 
What is the mark of success in life? The mark of success in life is whether or not we did all things for the glory of Christ. The true mark of success is whether we've worked by faith, believing that since Jesus rose from the dead, He is Lord. Death is not the end, and eternal life is ours to live and enjoy. So all we do here in this day will bear fruit for eternity. Friends, if the Lord, if He is Lord, any work that is done in Him will never be in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you, because in this life of vanity, we don't have to live vain lives. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus died and rose from the dead. In dying, he forgave our sins. In, in rising, he assured us the, the participation in the life to come. In the new creation, where work will be right and pleasures will be good, and wisdom will lead us to you. Thank you, Lord, because we know Jesus rose from the dead. And if he did, then he's Lord. And if he's Lord, we must work, serve, find our pleasure and delight and wisdom in him. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.